It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. And today's special guest, Mark Hennick, never stopped thinking about the man who saved him from a suicide attempt as a teenager. Hennick's search for the man in the brown jacket and their remarkable reunion many years later was recently featured in People magazine. Through Hennick's newly released book, So-Called Normal, a memoir of family, depression, and resilience, he aims to break the relentless stigma of mental illness. He tells his candid, intensely personal account of his youth, the events that led to that fateful night on the bridge, and the experiences and transformation that followed. Mark takes readers inside the mind of a boy who had to deal with the breakdown of his parents' marriage, an abusive stepfather, bullying and trauma, all while trying to navigate his progressively worsening mental health. In the backdrop is a community that didn't talk about mental illness, one where silence and maintaining the comforts of quote-unquote normal was paramount. Mark Hennick's TEDx talk, Why We Choose Suicide, is one of the most watched in the world and has been viewed millions of times. Hennick has been on television and radio and has written many articles on mental health. He has hosted more than 60 intimate conversations about mental health with notable public figures and celebrities on his podcast, So-Called Normal, and has executive produced and hosted the Living Well podcast for Morneau Chappelle. Hennick has served on the board of directors for the Mental Health Commission of Canada and was the president of a provincial division of the Canadian Mental Health Association, the youngest person in either role. He has worked as a frontline clinician, a program manager, and the national director of strategic initiatives for CMHA, currently the CEO and principal strategic strategist for strategic mental health consulting. We're so happy to welcome you, Mark. Welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Thank you for having me, Randy. It's a real honor to speak with you today. And it's an honor to speak with you as well. You've accomplished so much um, despite or as a result of, you know, because I'm a, I'm someone who believes that we're led to do great things through adversity. Mm. So tell us about your story because I know that I have your book here and um, I know you I, I know basically what your story is about how you started off as a child with some really unfortunate things that happened. So tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to the place where you had no other choice or so you thought, but to take your own yeah, life. Well, well, you know, this is, I, I base all of my, 
um, professional success now and everything that drives me uh, on those earliest experiences, struggling with severe depression and anxiety uh, from as young as at least about 10 years old. Uh, I was growing up in a highly uncertain environment after my father left when I was very young and uh, my my mother, as well as uh, my older brother, brother and sister and myself, uh, moved into a new home, which very quickly, um, you know, we realized was emotionally abusive. We were surrounded by this culture of toxic masculinity where it wasn't okay to talk about your emotions, especially if you were a boy or as my, my stepfather referred to as little men, uh, which I think gave a little bit of insight into, into his psychology as well. Um, so by the time I reached uh, only 12 years old, uh, people found out that I'd been thinking about suicide. Uh, for me, it seemed normal. I didn't have any other way uh, to think. For me, it was a way to try to, I think, escape the uh, oppressive, uh, trapped feeling that I'd been feeling inside for at least two years by that point. Um, so when a, when a teacher, uh, who was the first one to find out that I'd been thinking about suicide, I, I, I was drawing little um, doodles of 10 different ways that I could kill myself in the margins of a social studies test one day. Uh, that's really what kicked off my journey through a, a mental health system that not only I found out was broken, but that was apparently never built properly to begin with. Uh, and that's really where the book, uh, I think, uh, tries to, to, to focus in is my journey through more than a half a dozen different hospitalizations through increasingly dangerous suicide attempts uh, until eventually I found myself on the wrong side of a, a railing on a bridge one night. Uh, and if it wasn't for a complete stranger who happened to meet me there uh, to talk with me and eventually to pull me off that bridge, uh, I never would be here to share these stories. That, that's really when things changed for me. Did you ever wonder if that man was an angel or if he was truly a physical person? Did you ever give that some consideration? You know, I didn't, um, I didn't even fully believe myself uh, when I thought about that person who saved my life that night because um, when I was on the uh, edge of that bridge, I went there specifically uh, in the middle of the night on a Sunday night uh, in March uh, to a place where, uh, you know, there, there wouldn't be much traffic. Uh, so I could do it alone. You know, I felt so lonely inside that I wanted to die alone, too. So I wasn't expecting anybody to stop. And then this guy comes uh, up from uh, up behind me from out of nowhere, it seems. Uh, and he talks to me. And, and uh, as he spoke to me, uh, one of the most enduring concepts from the TED Talk that I delivered a few years ago was this idea of the perceptual collapse or cognitive rigidity, really, as, as, as we know it uh, more popularly now, I think. Um, and, it, and that's where I had found myself when I was on the edge of that bridge, collapsed into this tight, little, rigid, dark place. And as this stranger talked to me, it, it sort of introduced some more expansiveness into that. It breathed some life, some space into my perception. So that when it did, I realized that there were actually quite a lot of people uh, who had gathered around me. Uh, and there was a group of young men on the sidelines on the barricade, at the barricades that the police had set up. And one of those guys shouted out for me to jump. Uh, and called me a coward. So I had these two figures that stuck with me for the rest of my life from that moment, this angel over one shoulder and this devil over the other. Uh, and, and I think it, for me, um, so represented the internal struggle, the internal battle that I'd been facing for so long as well. Here it was personified. It wasn't until more than a dozen years later that I actually uh, went on a quest to find this stranger who saved my life and was successful in doing so. <laughs> So incredible. 
It's amazing how a moment in time can just stand out like it's happening right now. You know, it can be so clear in our minds. That was such a, a turning point for you in your life. So you called it cognitive rigidity. Is that what you said? Is that the term? Yeah. And, and what I like in that, too, is, um, you know, falling under uh, anesthesia. This is what the feeling of dissociation is like for those who have never experienced it before, that victims of trauma of a, variety, of a range of uh, traumatic experiences, um, it's your brain's way of saying, you know, you can stay, but I'm going to leave for a little while. And I think that's what I had started to do. I had started to dissociate. I had started to turn inward into myself as a self-protective mechanism because I couldn't deal with the world around me. Um, and the problem, you know, at first that was, that was a healthy coping mechanism. It led to being creative and to being, you know, uh, all the gifts of introversion, I think. But then when you go too deep into that, uh, you know, for those of your listeners who may have happened to have read Dante's Inferno, uh, at the bottom of hell in Dante's uh, construction is ice. It's frozen. You're immobilized. And that's what I liken severe depression and that suicidal crisis to being. You're at the bottom of hell where nothing can move, that you're completely convinced that this is what you need to do. And you can't even see outside of that tight, rigid little bubble because your cognitions are so, are, are so fixed when you're down there. It's a really interesting term. Thank you for sharing that because it's not something that I had heard of, but it does describe so many the way so many people feel. As a child, do you believe you had a mental illness to begin with? Do you believe you came into this world with this physical or mental issue? Or do you believe it developed as a result of circumstance? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great question. And it really comes back to the whole nature nurture debate. And what we now know in the science is that it's usually neither, uh, but rather both. And I think that was certainly the case for me, too. I don't believe that I was born this way, that I was born with a mental illness. And in fact, for the vast majority of people, I don't think that's true uh, for for really anybody. There are people, and I was likely one of them, who had uh, a genetic predisposition, perhaps, um, who who was uh, uh, neurologically and biologically predisposed to these kinds of struggles. Um, But genetics and biology and neurology don't mean anything unless your environment uh, switches those risk factors on uh, and unless you're surrounded by uh, risk factors that uh, that really make those illnesses take root. So I think that was certainly the case uh, for me. You know, I, I uh, struggled uh, because of so much uncertainty, because of the uh, lack of supports, uh, not only informal supports around me, social supports, but the lack of supports in the healthcare system as well, uh, that really weren't designed to meet my needs. And, you know, as I was writing the book, I really was able to, I think anyway, track the, um, uh, track the journey uh, as one of uh, essentially reinforcement that I would reach out for help in small ways about seemingly unrelated things, uh, either not get the help that I would need or be punished or feel punished anyway for seeking out that help. And then I would learn through this iterative process that it wasn't okay to speak up, that it wasn't okay to ask for help. Uh, and it turns out, you know, we, we've been talking about, the, about this since Freud, uh, you can't just bottle your feelings up and expect them to go away. They will come out in other ways. And 
That's why I firmly believe that suicidality and uh, and similar behaviors, this is information. Suicide and suicide attempts, suicidal ideation, um, these are symptoms. Uh, these are not the end states. These are symptoms of something else that's going on, an in- inability uh, to cope or a lack of skills in coping. So I, I think it, for me, was a, probably a combination. I probably had risk factors, uh, but the majority uh, of my struggle, I think, was triggered by my environment. Were you the only one in your family who responded in this extreme way? I think we all struggle in our own ways. And I later found out through my own opening up, through my own advocacy, and uh, certainly, you know, through the TED Talk and the book and all the other work that I've done, that uh, many people who were in my immediate circles struggled too, including my, my immediate family. You know, there's kind of a secondary story in my book about my mother's own development uh, as somebody who had, you know, grew up in a very traditional Irish Catholic family where uh, marriage was supposed to be forever and, you know, people were supposed to, life was hard, but you just gritted out and, and family meant everything. And when she saw her own family falling apart and grasping as best she could to to be the peacemaker, to keep it all together, to work hard and, uh, you know, keep her nose down and, and work hard, um, I think she struggled, well, she did struggle uh, considerably with her own mental health during these times as well. Uh, So, you know, to see her development uh, in tandem with my own development in telling the story, I think, was really enlightening for me. Because when you get so locked into your own stuff, uh, you often don't appreciate that, that we're all traveling this journey. So true. You say uh, in the really beginning, like third chapter of your book, that you had a desperate need for connection at all costs. You possessed mm-hmm. an eager willingness to prioritize validation and acceptance over just about anything. You say, I wanted to be seen, to feel seen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is such a tragedy for a child to experience. And we talked a little bit about the fact that I'm a narcissistic abuse expert and the child, you know, children are assigned roles in these, these type of families and the child, the invisible child who feels unseen almost never recovers from that. It carries through. There's a message that is left as an adult, no matter how old you get that you're invisible. So how did that carry through in the rest of your story? Yeah, you know, I think that um, like so many parts of my story, um, if you become a, a, a victim of your circumstance, that is to say, if you live your life unmindfully uh, and your life happens to you, then yes, I think those same scripts play out. Uh, that that um, lack of, uh, of secure attachment that I uh, missed out on or that, that, that security and of attachment that I missed out on as a young child would have, I think, reverberated in negative ways for me throughout my life, as it did through my teenage years. You know, I was one of those kids uh, who the more help they need, the less help they get because they become known as the attention seekers, the frequent flyers, uh, the boy who cried wolf. When really, you know, people will continue to escalate their behavior if their needs aren't getting met. They're trying to get their needs met. A kid will cry louder if they don't get their needs met. That's what uh, kids do. Um, But instead, uh, I think if we were able to uh, uh, 
address our, how averse we feel to that kind of behavior, realize that behavior is information, then you can meet those needs to fill that cup before it becomes such a chronic uh, need. Now, that said, I think I have been able to recognize uh, that those early life experiences uh, inform everything that I do. I mean, it's, it's not a, it doesn't take – I don't know why I'm bringing up Freud twice in one conversation. I never talk about <laughs> Freud, but it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't take Freud to figure out why I do so much media and write books and do TED Talks now um, because I think we all crave the most what we were given the least – that, that uh, desire to be seen, that desire to share your story, um, you know, it, it came for me from a, from a scarcity mentality, I think, from a very young age where you have to really, really take what, when, when it's given because it's so rare. Powerful insight, Mark. That really is powerful. Yeah, we do, we do play it out, don't we? I mean, I know that helping people overcome what I suffered is always a reinforcement of healing. It just yeah. is constantly reinforcing what I have achieved, but probably need to keep reminding myself of. You were admitted for the first time. You were 14 when you were first admitted to a psych ward. Uh, and yeah. what was that like? Were you, that must've been terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. You know, I remember the first, very first night, like it was yesterday, where I was brought in, uh, we went in through the emergency room. I had been in the emergency room before, um, but hadn't been admitted. They had just sent me home. But then this this time I went in and they did decide to admit me. And uh, one of my very first um, uh, experiences with psychiatric care or mental health care, I, I hesitate to even call it care, but uh, was that they strapped me down to a stretcher uh, using restraint. Uh, and I wasn't violent. I wasn't. I, I went in voluntarily. My mother was with me, uh, and I asked why they were doing this, why this was necessary to strap me down. They were only taking me two floors downstairs in the elevator to get to the psych ward when they had decided to admit me. And I remember the nurse saying that this is procedure that we have to do this with with mental health patients. And I remember even then feeling this isn't right. You know, I came here to get help, not to be strapped down and treated like a so-called crazy person. Uh, and when I went into that psych ward. Every piece of the environmental design uh, reinforced sickness rather than recovery. You know, whether it was being strapped to the stretcher, whether it was being rolled down into the basement where the, where the psych ward was, uh, you know, down the hall from the morgue, uh, being brought through the double locked doors and hearing the clank of the lock when they closed behind me, being brought into the room that I shared with an elderly gentleman. I was the youngest on the unit by a matter of decades because we didn't have, we we're a small town, we didn't have child and youth inpatient mental health care. Um, so most of the people were much, much older. And then being woken up in the middle of the night on that very first night with this man across the room from me screaming, we will overcome, we will overcome. And then he just went back to sleep again. I don't know what he was, what he thought we were overcoming. Uh, to, to this day, I still don't know, but especially as a little kid, really, uh, in that unit at that time, I was terrified. And, and I, it just, it was, uh, it was traumatic for me. And it, I didn't realize that, I think, until much, much later, that this stuff wasn't my fault. Uh, and that took a lot of work for me to be able to, to fully appreciate that, that I was put into a system uh, that in some ways made me worse. There were helpful people along the way, don't get me wrong, but there were so many parts of the system uh, that were so uh, jarring like that that, that really um, it's no wonder that I had such a difficult time recovering in that kind of environment. 
And, you know, we're talking about the year 2001 when you were 14 Mm. and first admitted. One would have thought by that century people would understand. I mean, this isn't the 1930s, the 1940s. This isn't lobotomy time. You would have thought that we have progressed, but I've come to find out that the mental health field um, in many ways has not progressed that much. So I find that really upsetting to know that that was, you know, 20 years ago, which really is kind of a blink of an eye for most of us that this was going on. Yeah, and, it, and you it, know, I, yeah. I, I I mention this to people all the time where, you know, we've come a long way, no doubt, in the last 10 years or so in mental health awareness. Um, there's a lot more celebrities speaking openly. Millennials, Gen Z are much more likely to speak openly about their mental health than older generations. But I challenge anybody who thinks that we've defeated stigma and that we've dramatically improved on how we treat mental health or changed the system in any measurable way go visit a psych ward because even to this day, they're very similar. You know, you have the nurses behind their locked uh, fishbowl, they call it the glass enclosure where very often, you know, patients are ignored. Uh, Physical and and, uh, mechanical and chemical restraint is still routinely used across the United States and Canada, despite the fact that the World Health Organization uh, has called this a violation of people's rights. Um, you know, the prisons and police are still frontline mental health crisis workers for some reason. You know, they're they're pushed into those roles. Uh, so I think very little structurally has actually changed with the system, and that needs to be the next step in advocacy. I so agree. There is so much work to be done. That's why I'm passionate. I know that's why you're passionate. Yeah, we need to be out there. We need yeah. to be talking about this. This is so important. I wanted to back up and um, talk about the situation that happened when you were in school with the knife, and because that just chilled me to the bone. Explain mm-hmm. what happened when you walked into that classroom and your whole, your whole plan when you walked into that classroom. Yeah, so this was after yet another uh, argument with my stepfather, um, which had become quite frequent. Uh, um, It it went shortly after we moved in with him, actually. My family moved in with him. And we found out that they seemed to coincide, these these fights and arguments, uh, with his moods and with his uh, headaches. He used to have devastating, ravaging headaches uh, that would result from a, a severe brain injury that he sustained Uh, When he was working as a construction worker, he fell through a a roof of a building that they were working on. He landed on his head. Uh, It it, um, had severe damage to the frontal lobe of his brain uh, and lost his senses of taste and smell and a variety of other uh, symptoms. Uh, And it seemed that that seemed related to some some pretty dramatic mood swings uh, that would happen really for the duration of, of the time we spent together. Um, so it was after another one of those um, blowouts at home. He always seemed to choose the times right before we had to go somewhere, you know, right before my mother had to go to work or right before bed or right before we went to school. And I think it was about controlling who could leave and who couldn't. Everything was always about controlling the environment and the people around it for him. And uh, I got to school that morning entirely dissociated, uh, I think, in many ways, that that sense of falling under anesthesia. And I remember going to uh, and sitting through my first class and I was there, but I wasn't really there. It's like I could see things happening in front of me, but I was just kind of dead inside, it felt like. 
And then in the after the first period, the rest of the class went off to their next period, but I stayed behind. Uh, and then when the hallways were empty, I went down to uh, the teaching kitchen uh, and I asked the teacher there if I could borrow a knife. And I remember very distinctly, especially through the process of writing the book, that, you know, the the first time when I was just making those drawings on the side of my test, it was just kind of a, a brainstorm in some ways. This time was a little bit more realized, like it was still uh, impulse driven, but it had a little bit more structure to it, as though I was building this cognitive pathway, or I use this image um, recurringly in the book of, of uh, pushing through the woods or pushing my, a, a pathway uh, toward learning how to kill myself, essentially, because it's not something you're born knowing how to do. Um, so I asked the teacher there for a knife, and I remember when she, I remember her reaction to that and, and seeing it as though I was a hostage inside my own head. Like I wanted to scream out for her to help me, but there was something that was holding me hostage inside myself that, that wouldn't let me. Um, and when I saw that she looked a little bit nervous that I was asking for a knife, uh, it's like something took over on uh, the, the controls inside me. And I said that, uh, that my teacher had sent me down because we were having cake in class. It was somebody's birthday. Uh, I wanted, I wanted uh, my, I wanted her reality to be more comfortable. Uh, I didn't want her to be nervous and, and worry about me. Uh, so then uh, she, it worked and she directed me back to where the knives were. I took one and, uh, and that's when I wandered around the school, you know, the four floors of my school with this uh, eight inch long chef's knife that I had hidden in my, in my backpack. It could barely, it would barely fit in my backpack. Uh, just wandering around, wondering, uh, I don't know if I was waiting for somebody to interrupt me, uh, if I was waiting for somebody to ask why I wasn't in class, uh, I don't, and nobody did. Um, but I think that I had inadvertently stalled myself long enough, because I don't think that people who are suicidal really do want to die. That's not the, death isn't the point of suicide, ironically. Um, you don't want to feel the pain that you're feeling. I think that's more so the point for, for most people anyway. Uh, but I think I had stalled myself long enough that I just, again, on, on impulse, found myself at the guidance counselor's office where when he asked me what was wrong, I, I pulled out that knife. And that was another one of those moments where you notice you notice the reaction of the person in front of you when you pull out an eight-inch long chef's knife uh, in front of them. And I could see the fear in his eyes because he probably – he probably was uh, bound by the same stigma as everybody else that I was going to be violent because I was a mentally ill kid, right? And mentally ill people are supposed to be violent. That's what we're told all the time, despite the fact that research has conclusively shown that that's not the case. I didn't know that, and neither did he. Um, and that's when he he tried to talk me out of it, and I had by that point had become so locked in that I uh, put the knife to my throat and I was ready to kill myself and. Uh, and the guidance counselor tackled me. He tackled me to the floor and he wrestled the knife from my hand. And uh, and that was really, I think, when my mother in particular, after the guidance counselor had called my mother and brought me back to the, brought me to the hospital, I think that's when she first realized finally that I was in fact suicidal. There was another time when you tried to hang yourself and she caught you, right? Was that before or after this? Uh, that was after. And what I began to notice was that the triggers were becoming uh, uh, increasingly trivial. Uh, it, it seemed like the more pressure that was building up inside me, it didn't take much once I started down that pathway uh, of, of trying to kill myself as a coping mechanism. I was almost becoming addicted to suicide. Uh, that that, uh, that began to become my, uh, my primary coping, maladaptive coping mechanism. 
Um, so yes, it, it eventually became like I was a raw wire and, and almost everything would, would, uh, trigger me, uh, into thinking about suicide. It's hard to imagine what it feels like to live with that kind of mindset. The world must look so bleak, so hopeless for you to feel that way. Is that how it, it does? Looks? And you don't. It, it does, but also there's this sense that it just is. It just is, right? Because you don't. The the way that this collapsing happens is that when you're in it, you're in it. You don't know that there's out of it <laughs> because you're in it. Um, so it's not like you're able to say, or it's not like you're able to take the perspective uh, and say that it's bleak because bleak in some ways uh, requires something to not be bleak for comparison. You know, light, light requires dark in order to know the difference. Uh, St. Augustine uh, wrote about that. Um, you know, so I, I think it's hard to make that distinction when you're in it, but certainly I can look back now and, and the, one of the most beautiful things about recovery in some ways uh, is that you're able to look back and realize how far you've come. And you really can't do that when you're, when you're in it. When you're in it, you're just grinding it out and you're taking it day by day and just hanging in there and all those seemingly silly platitudes. But it's really very true that once you get, it's only once you get some distance from it that you're able to really look back and, and uh, give it some perspective. At what point did because at first it was sort of a whim or not really a whim, but it was just a, you were Mm -hmm. doodling on the side of a test page, test Mm -hmm. paper. Mm -hmm. At what point did it become so natural to feel like that? You know, I think, um, and I didn't realize this until I had written the book, actually. I think it was very much um, an iterative uh, learned experience that I would, it started off very amorphous, you know, actually even before the doodles, it had just been kind of thoughts, vague thoughts in my head about a variety of things. And then they took a little bit more form as drawings and then a bit more form as talking about it. And then actually, um, uh, developing kind of haphazard sloppy plans. And then the plans became more definite. So it was, it was fascinating to writing the book. And, uh, when I wrote it, uh, I pulled all of my medical records from this time in my life. So everything that all of the nurses and doctors and everybody had written about me, I took it all and I laid it out. I went away to a Trappist monastery in the woods and I lived there for, for more than a month for the first draft anyway. Um, and I looked at all of this medical information in front of me, the timeline. I, it was important for me to sort out the timeline exactly. And that ended up being kind of challenging too. Uh, but when I actually took a step back and looked at it, it was so obvious the progression or the the degradation of my of my mental health that it made me wonder why didn't anybody else see this <laughs> like it just seemed like such a logical progression from very um uh, uh ill defined uh, mental illness and suicidality to becoming much more pointed and much more uh, specific in its trajectory and and all told that trajectory went uh, largely unhelped, largely uninterrupted for three years at least. And you're a parent, uh, I, I believe. Uh, you, uh, you talk about having a baby in your book, uh, and I'm a parent, and it is so beyond my realm of thinking to ignore a child in this way. It's just mm. it's so unbelievable that you could have fallen through the cracks the way that you did. Well, I think in in some ways too, and and I hear a lot from parents, particularly who have lost kids to suicide, 
Um, and, and they say what my mother said very early on. We didn't see it coming. Uh, and that's despite the fact that we know that there's almost always some sort of red flag that the person puts up. And the only reason I say that is certainly uh, that parents shouldn't feel guilty, I think, assuming, you know, that they are, in fact, trying their best. But if they're having any kind of emotional reaction, then they probably were trying their best. But I think that it's uh, within parental psychology um, that what parent would ever want to think of their kid struggling so deeply and, and God forbid, even dying. So I think that the parent's mind, I can certainly relate to this now, blocks that out. We block it out as a possibility and, and, and we reject the idea that our kid could be suffering so much or, or, or uh, could potentially someday not be here. Uh, so as a result, I think we don't want to see what they're struggling with. And that's why, I mean, that, that calls for two interventions. One is to uh, be more aware uh, of your child's mental health and be more willing to have these kinds of hard conversations and uh, as just a daily matter of course. Uh, and the other part is recognizing when you're too close, when maybe you're not the best person, even if you are their parent and you love them unconditionally, maybe you're not the best person uh, to help them through their struggle. Maybe they really do need a professional or even just somebody who's not you uh, in order to get through them. I don't think that's uncommon at all. Mm, okay. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yes. When it's sudden and parents just did not see it coming, I understand that First of all, we never want to blame ourselves for this kind of, no. for our children doing something like that. I mean, that is, uh, that's a hor- horrific, horrendous way to have to live after something so tragic. Yeah. Also recognizing that our kids are their own people too. We don't, con- once they leave you, you don't really control them anymore. So they have their own ideas. They have their own, they make their own decisions and we can't take that all on ourselves, but that's, my God, that's just about the hardest thing in the world uh, right. to, to do, especially if the kid is younger. And, you know, I know being, having been interested in mental health for so many years, as I raised my children, I watched so carefully. And when my children were in deep depression at, in their, you know, if they would go through something in their teenage years, I pretty much wouldn't leave their side. I don't mean I was glued to them, but I meant I didn't leave them alone. I wouldn't leave the house. I kept checking in because it scared me to see my child that broken. And I know teenagers don't have the insight to know that life goes on and things can get better. So that really scared me. Yeah, well, you know, I think that teenagers don't yet have uh, the information. Really, when you think of it, I was, when I, I first started becoming suicidal as young as 12 years old, I only had 12 years experience of life. Um, and not even all of that, of course, I would even remember. Uh, so I just didn't yet have the perspective. But again, you, you, when you're in it, you're in it. You don't know that you don't have the perspective because you're 12 or you're 15 right. or 17 or whatever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I think it, it is incumbent on parents, really from the very earliest stages, Uh, to have more conversations about emotional literacy, teaching kids, giving kids vocabulary for what they're feeling, because so often that's at the core, I really believe, of so many struggles that kids have, is that they feel these big feelings uh, that they want to have insight or they think they have insight, but Remember, they're they're still learning what what it is to be a human, what it is to be alive, and 
you know, sometimes we don't realize this even with really young kids too, is that, oh, this is their first time ever feeling any of this stuff. Of course they don't, don't know what to do with it yet. So I think we as parents, our job is to give our kids um, as broad of a vocabulary as possible in terms of their emotional world, uh, what they're feeling, what to call those feelings, because you can't deal with something if you don't know what to call it. That's so true. And yes, that is absolutely the job of a parent. It is also, it should also be the job of education, of public education Mm. and private education. There just needs, and so many people say this and yet nothing changes. Now, of course, right now, nothing is moving at all, but Mm -hmm. emotional education, having, showing children how to get in touch with their feelings to be able to express what's inside of them is so important that it really should be part of the curriculum, I believe. It should be. And, you know, you're right. We've talked about this for ages and not much has really happened. There are some really interesting uh, pilot programs or or things happening here and there that are really promising, uh, but nothing in a really broad-based way, which is mind-boggling to me, too, because this stuff isn't rocket science. You know, the the science, the research, um, whether it's neurological or psychological research around mental health is still – 15 years ahead of what we're actually, at least, of what we're actually doing in practice in most places. Hmm. And that's why people don't seem to realize that recovery from most mental health problems and illnesses, including some severe mental health problems and illnesses, recovery is expected. Recovery is likely when people get the help they need. We have good therapies and good interventions for many mental health problems and illnesses. The problem is that the vast majority of people are not getting access to those treatments, that they're being bounced around in systems that don't help them. Uh, They're not being taught how to manage their emotions from a young age. This is all stuff that we know how to do. We already have the solutions, but we're not implementing them. Mm. Yes. That's appalling. really is when you think about it. So when, when you're talking about standing on that bridge, clinging to the barrier behind you, you say, I pulled this comment out because I really wanted you to elaborate on it, but you say, Mm -hmm. black and white is comforting when everything looks gray. What did you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think in the um, uncertainty uh, that often accompanies depression or just life in general, uh, we cling to things that can be that can feel certain when your uncertainty comes with insecurity with feeling insecure and there's no worth feeling in my mind especially for a kid with you know without a lot of secure attachments uh, that you're just groping around for somewhere to feel safe uh, and I think that we see this in our current political discourses as well and we see this in the polarization of just about everything that people retreat to the extremes because it's safer there. It's less threatening. It's less uncertain. Uh, And if there's anything that spikes people's anxiety, it's uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen next or what might happen. So, you know, this is where I really credit my uh, undergraduate education, which was a, a liberal arts education, with this idea that it's okay to not know that it's okay to feel uncertain. And and really it's a skill that I use in my recovery to this day uh, that when I experience a a negative emotion or a strong emotion, rather than run from it, rather than try to either uh, medicate it away or, or escape it or, uh, or anything, just being able to sit back and ask it what it's trying to teach me or realizing that I don't know what 
the purpose of this is yet, or I don't even know where it's coming from yet, but let's just ride it out and see where it goes. I think that ability to create some spaciousness inside my own mind has been one of my greatest uh, coping mechanisms. I think you are so right. It's something that I encourage many of my clients to do because often when you're an adult child of emotional abuse, you have practiced Mm -hmm. for years and years packing stuff down and you have layers and layers and layers and you don't even know sometimes what you're feeling. And it's important to begin to unpack that and to begin to learn that the feelings can't hurt you, that if you allow them, if you allow yourself to feel them, they won't hurt you. And then the more you can feel, the more alive you become. So tell us that man in the light brown jacket said to you when you were standing there on the other side of the rail. I remember that as he approached from behind me that I couldn't see him. Uh, as I glanced back, I could, I could see that he was wearing a light brown jacket, but that was it. And uh, he introduced himself, uh, and, but I, you know, at that point, everything that was coming into me was either being deflected away or, or not making it to my, my ears at all. I was blocking most things out. And I remember that he approached the railing from a good distance away, certainly further than arm's distance. And uh, I remember noting in my mind that he didn't sound like a mental health expert. He didn't sound like a doctor, a psychiatrist, or a psychologist or anything, because I had talked to so many uh, over the course of the journey that brought me there to that point, that I felt like I knew what they all sounded like. They all talked in similar ways, and and often it was a very, um, ob, you know, objective but also objectifying way, wherein they would talk to you like a diagnosis or like an illness. And, and this guy, uh, I, I I first noticed what he didn't talk to me about were things like my diagnosis or my medication or my hospitalizations, or, or what what. Uh, Um, treatments I had undergone. Um, He just asked me, I think about my pets and about my family and friends, what subjects I liked in school. Uh, He talked to me about the things that I was passionate about, if I had any hobbies. It really felt like he was just authentically trying to get to know me and my problems didn't matter. Uh, and, and ironically, him not focusing on my problems as though they were the only thing, the only part of me. I think that's what made me feel like I mattered uh, to him, that I was more than just this diagnosis. I was more than a kid who happened to be standing on an inch and a half of concrete uh, above the ground, that it was somebody who was finally just trying to get to know me. And I think that's really what helped to breathe some of that uh, space or some of that that, uh, um, connection uh, into my mind at that time was that he wasn't talking at me. He was talking to me and with me, and that was such a different feeling. I, hadn't, I didn't really know what that was like until that point. And then the stranger or teenager, whatever, on the side yells, jump. You mm-hmm. feel objectified, and you let go. Yeah, I likened it to, in my mind anyway, to little underwater explosions where, you know, the, the uh, stranger in the light brown jacket was, was filling this space. But then when that other guy on the sidelines said for me to jump, it just collapsed everything back in again. It was, I was still uh, subject to these triggers uh, that, would, that would make me collapse after all. So uh, when he said that, I, I let go. And, um, you know, time and space do funny things in your mind when you're, when you're in this distorted place. So 
I don't even know how long it was or what, you know, it could have been a split second. It could have been forever. It's hard to say, but that stranger who had been right behind or very near to me behind me the whole time wrapped his arms around me as I started to let go. Uh, and he grabbed me and, and pulled me back over the railing and, and physically saved my life. And your feet had already left the concrete, right? You are, had already slipped off. Well, when concrete. he grabbed me, yes, I was, uh, and he pulled me back so hard. I remember hitting the, the railing behind me and my feet blew up off the edge and I was just dangling over the side of the bridge. Uh, and, and that's when, too, I, there was another hand that grabbed my jacket from behind. And it turned out, I didn't know this at the time, but uh, the stranger in the light brown jacket after we reconnected told me that there was a police officer, a female police officer, who had been standing behind me for much of the time, too. And that when, when he grabbed me, uh, she jumped in as well and helped him to pull me back over the railing. Oh, wow. Wow. What a moment in time. So after that happened, <clears throat> what was, what did you do? I mean, because now you're still having these feelings, but your life has been saved. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you navigate the rest of the process of living? Yeah. So I was uh, loaded into the ambulance. I was shipped back to the hospital. I was admitted again uh, to the basement psych ward, like I had been so many times before. Uh, and, you know, I, I use the phrase in the book, too, nothing changes if nothing changes. I was I was discharged 24 hours later because by that point I was seen as somebody who just, you know, who would be back, who, who, who this was just me now. Um, but I remember I was discharged uh, on the first day of spring. And for me, that was that was incredibly symbolic for me because ever since that moment or in that period of time immediately after that moment, I couldn't help but fixate on these two men, the stranger in the light brown jacket who was talking to me and getting to know me, and the stranger on the sidelines who wasn't interested in getting to know me, who, who, who pushed me away in many ways. Um, and as a, the more I ruminated on them, I couldn't help but, but think about the idea that these two men were watching the exact same situation unfold in front of them, and they each had very different responses to that, to that situation. And I think that's what really started to to trigger the realization for me uh, that I could, I had more control than I thought that I had over my life. I could choose how I responded uh, to the same situation. You know, if nothing changes, but I can change my response to those situations. And it's not like it was a suddenly a, you know, a, a hallelujah moment that everything turned around for me. I struggled for a long time and it was still, recovery is messy. It's up and down and sideways and there's lots of relapses and mistakes along the way. Um, but I think over time, that idea that I could in fact choose to be like the stranger in the light brown jacket who saved my life, I could choose to reach out to others, to connect with others, to be authentic um, to get to, to see the person instead of the, the diagnosis. When I started to, to make a, a conscious effort to be like that, that's when things started to turn around and I started to reverse the cycle. You know, the, the, um, the spiral that led me downward was kind of a, a reinforcing cycle of bad things happening. And then when, I, when that switch flicked in a very small way, it reversed it and it started to be good things building on each other instead. You know, I, opened, I started opening up about my experience and then that got a little bit of positive feedback from other people who, who started to open up to me too because I started to open up about my own experience. 
and then more positive feedback came as I as I started to explore the bigger world around me and then went off to college and grad school and then uh, started working as a clinician, helping other people who were just like me when I was a kid, uh, getting invited to do that TED Talk. You know, it took more than a dozen years uh, for me to realize that I was even on this upward spiral the whole time. I didn't know that I was recovering this whole time. Uh, until the day that I reconnected with this stranger uh, in the light brown jacket who saved my life so many years earlier. So you were invited to do the TED Talk. That's <clears throat> that's amazing. Somebody heard your story or knew you, knew of you, and thought that this would be a, a great way to share your story. Yeah, that's a you know. Some, sometimes people think. Um, you know, on the journey, people often only see the the mountain peaks. They don't see the valleys between the mountains. Uh, when in in reality, you know, I'd been uh, working in the mental health space in some capacity or another since high school. I started a, uh, a foundation based on awareness in the art, uh, using the arts as a method of raising awareness for mental health. When I was in high school, uh, I had been writing for my local newspaper and and my high school newspaper. I'd been speaking a little bit about my experiences. I did this through college and grad school. I got involved with mental health organizations. Uh, so so you know I'd been building up this as my as my vocation, as my passion, really for my entire life. Uh, and then did this TED Talk, and it just sent it to the stratosphere. This ended up getting viewed by millions of people around the world. And uh, it's really what provoked me to try to to find that stranger, because it, it reminded me that um, I didn't even know who this guy really was all these years, but I, I'd been modeling my life after him ever since. And then you get a letter from a man named Mike Ritchie from Halifax. Yeah. Yeah, I... I um, <laughs> I had this incredible urge to find this stranger who saved my life. So I'd been doing, you know, I started by writing for newspapers and then had been doing more and more television. So I asked a television producer I knew here in Canada uh, on what was then Canada's most watched morning news program. uh, If I could come on and ask for the public's help in finding the stranger who saved my life. And they agreed. And I came on, I think it was at like five 30 the next morning or something like that. I went on and I, I asked for, they showed some clips of the TED Talk uh, of this story of the stranger saving my life. I asked for the public's help in finding him and I went on my Twitter and Facebook pages and did the same. Uh, and within a couple of hours, I found out that that stranger didn't know that I was still alive, that he had only just seen the TED Talk himself and that he had, he had written me a letter in case someday he ever found me. So it turned out that when I was, at the moment that I started to look for him, the stranger was looking for me too. And they sent me that letter. I read it. And, and those were his very first words. He said, hi, Mark, my name is Mike Ritchie. And him suddenly having a name, the stranger in the light brown jacket, who had been my role model, my secret role model for my entire adult life by that point, him suddenly having a name meant that he was real. And if he was real, it meant my story was real too. Uh, so it was, it was one of the most deeply validating experiences that I could finally say that I truly felt seen which is what I wanted for my entire life up until that point. That must have blown your mind getting this letter. So when was it that you actually met or have you met the man physically? Yeah. 
Yeah, so we we um, reconnected initially by email at first. He sent me this. He emailed me this letter, and then we um, brought him up to Toronto because I knew I needed to to actually meet him in person. So we flew he and his partner up to Toronto, uh, and brought cameras along as well. So you know most of it is video documented. Uh, uh, where I, we were in downtown Toronto, and he approached me. And I remember he, he just looked me directly in the eyes. And the first thing that he did when he said, or I guess the second thing that he did, because we, after we met that first time, was to wrap his arms around me again and, and this mm-hmm. time give me a, a hug. And, you know, I told Mike that I had no idea how to thank him, not just for saving my life, but for giving me my whole life ever since. And the best thing I could do was to show him the life that he gave me. Uh, and I introduced him to my wife and my then two-year-old little boy. He's now my second little boy's godfather. Uh, he hasn't met my one-year-old little girl yet, but he will someday. Uh, I was able to talk to him about my passions and my interests and my hobbies, to show him where I worked and the things that I loved to do, the people that I loved, all the stuff that I never knew, I never would have believed would have been possible for me when we first met on the edge of that bridge. And it was all because of him. That must have overwhelmed him to to receive. I'm thinking about myself if I had done something like that just on a whim and then to find out that this person I saved became such a spokesperson and healed his life and is helping other people. And I mean, that would feel so overwhelming to him. How did he describe how he felt hearing all of this? Mike addressed this in his letter. He said that when he saw the TED Talk in particular, that's when it really hit him, because that was the first time that he realized that I was still alive, that I didn't just go back the next day after he saved me and finished what I'd started. Uh, He said that he never knew he could feel so proud of somebody who he had spent such little time with. Uh, to see me doing this. And, and, and it was because he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I, I will too say, too, that he had the bravery uh, to approach such an uncertain and, and dangerous, difficult circumstance, but he did it. He didn't choose to stand on the sidelines uh, or to ignore the situation. Uh, so for him, you know, he he uh, he talked about his own trauma as well of that experience and how scared he was. And, um, you know, for me to be able to appreciate that that collateral impact, I think, on, on other people was incredibly useful as well. Um, you know, we, we've talked many times since then, and, and uh, including once the, the book came out several times. Uh, and he's just been such a wonderful support. He's, he's been working in mental health ever since, just like me. Uh, he's been working in crisis intervention for young boys <laughs> ever wow. since. Wow. So, oh, my like, gosh. To know that we we impacted each other in such a profound way, I think is, is an incredible uh, testament to the, to the uh, power of these small moments, seemingly small moments on people. Wow. The universe really put you together. Wow. Yeah. That's just, that's yeah. all I can say. It's um it's an incredible story. So Mark, is there anything that you want to leave us with? Any? Well, I, I yeah, you know, my, my experience, and I'm always, uh, I always tell people that my experience is mine and, and your experience is yours. There, there might be a lot of similarities, but we all have our own journey through this. But what I hope that people learn from my story uh, is that when moments seem the darkest, when they seem the bleakest, and even if you're absolutely convinced that, that how things are now is how they will always be, 
There is no greater lie that our depression tells us than that, that things will never change, when the reality is, of course, that this too shall pass. All things shall pass, whether they be uh, uh, trial and tribulation or the joys in life. So I think the lesson there is to hold our trials lightly, that they will pass, our suffering will pass, uh, and to approach our, our joyful moments with more gratitude, because they too will pass. So I think if we can do that, if we can hold our experiences more lightly, uh, it can help us not cling to our struggles and to be more grateful for the great things that, that enter our life. Mm. Perfect message to leave us with. So your book is called So-Called Normal, and you also have a podcast of the same name. Mark, how can we mm-hmm. find you? I'm, I'm not we, to do, you have a website? do you have a website? Yeah, I'm, on, I'm at markhennick.com. It's at uh, M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K.com. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, everywhere else uh, at markhennick.com and all those too. And where can we watch your TED Talk? Uh, it's called Why We Need to Talk About Suicide. That's available on YouTube. It's one of it's uh, been one of the most watched uh, TEDx talks in the world actually for some years now. So it, it shouldn't wow. be hard to find either. Okay, I'm sure it won't be. That actually, I did watch that. I did watch it. I wanted to know who I was going to be talking to, so I did, and it was fabulous. You did a great job. Thank well, you. thank you so much. It was great talking to you. You've helped a lot of people uh, and previously and today even more. You're an inspiration to all those who listen to you. Thank you very much for that. Thank you for having me and thank you for doing what you do with the show as well. You are so very welcome. Have a good day. Enjoy Toronto. It's cold and snowy, but life is good, right? Life is great. (laughs) Life is great. Okay. Have a great day. Talk soon. Okay, bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.